Hey everybody, this is Rob Liefeld and I am welcoming you to Rob Observations, episode one. Hey, I'm Rob Liefeld. We are talking comic books today and pop culture, a whole lot of Avengers, Justice League, and much, much more. This is uh, where I'm going to expand on my interests of comic books, not just as a fan, but my career. It overlaps a 34-year career uh creating, producing, writing, drawing, publishing comic books that started 46 years ago with an obsession with consuming comic books. A lot of people call it collecting comic books. I don't that 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 collecting to me has always uh it 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 implies that it's just for a financial or a value uh, impact, or, or some sort of transaction. Collecting is is great. I love collecting. Collecting to me is once I've consumed the comic book and I have appreciated it for all of the creativity that it contains, the the, the art, the story. Uh, then I I keep it. I keep it. I've never viewed comic books as disposable. And uh, I used to pile them up on shelves in my closet uh, when I was a kid, way before I was introduced to long boxes, short boxes, any of these, you know, uh, constructs that would come about where they were created bags and boards. I didn't, I didn't come of age in the in in the age of bags and boards where you would carefully put your comic books you know, in plastic and uh, with, with a backing board to stiffen it up and then file it away in a long box. I, I came from a period where you bought a comic and you appreciated that comic and then you put it on your shelf or sometimes I put them in my dresser drawers. Uh, when I was very, very early on collecting, my, my mom was not happy with some of the comics I was bringing home. Uh, I think they, they seemed a little too violent or a little too... Uh, sexy. The the women were portrayed, you know, very sexy. These 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 artists were fantastic. Uh, Master of Kung Fu. We'll, we'll we'll get we'll get to that over time. But I would hide them ridiculously. I I hid them under the washer dryer, which you know, not even thinking that they would get damp or they would get wet. But so I have uh, been consuming comics. Uh, that's how I like to refer to it rather than collecting comics, but it, uh, comic books have been and continue to be my absolute lifelong obsession. I was, uh, six years old when I was introduced to my first Marvel comic. They were fantastic four comics. Uh, some other time I'll go really into detail how I got those first comics, uh, that there will hopefully be many observations to come where we can uh, go over some of this the, the these instances these these stories that that really sh- shaped my obsession but uh, the, com- the 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 comic books that I first received the Fantastic Four comics in 1974 were given to me by my barber at his barber shop he had these comic books and I had not seen superhero comics and once I interacted with them, especially Marvel superhero comics, I was a changed man. It changed my outlook, my perspective. They became the thing I wanted to consume 
more than anything. Uh, I, I would pour over these comics, but the Fantastic Four comics that I got were a little out of order. They weren't chronological. I, you know, would get a one four, Fantastic Four one forty seven is my first comic book that blew me away. Prince Namor uh, takes on the Fantastic Four. Great art by Rich Buckler and uh, Joe Sinnott. I believe the story was by either Len, Len Wein or Jerry Conway. I'll check on that, but. That would lead me to now seeking out comic books, which I did uh, at the local supermarkets, the 7-Elevens, and the liquor stores, which were just a few blocks from my house. And once I uh, started perusing them regularly, I, I got the hang of the comic book pattern that they came out monthly, and, and I could get, you know... New adventures for most of these comics, I would get them, you know, once a month. But that that takes, you know, you, you sort of get the hang of it when you're seven years old. And in 1975, I am seven years old, and that is where the majority of my where it really kicks in, where I'm starting to buy three, four, five comics at a pop. Now, again, comic books in this era are 25 cents; they're a quarter. So a quarter can get you a Hershey chocolate bar, a Reese's peanut butter cup, or a comic book. And now a dollar was hard to come by when I was a kid. Uh, and and I'll, I'll explain to you later how I would amass my quarters and dollars that I would be able to get these comic books that I was so obsessed with uh, through a manner of chores. But at the end of the story, at the end of the day, it's it's about, you know, these comics were a quarter a pop, and I would try and get as many as I could, and I started to understand, okay, so I have Avengers 141, and then I can get Avengers 142 next month. And sometimes, and this was the great thing, the liquor store, more than any, this liquor store on the corner of Broadway and Magnolia in Anaheim was the best distribution chain for the comic books. There was a 7-Eleven and a Stater Brothers market, that both carried comic books. 7-Eleven had a really good selection. Good, solid, regularly updated. But the liquor store had a wider variety by far. There, It didn't seem like there was any comic book that the liquor store did not carry. DC Comics, Charlton Comics, uh, Warren Magazines, Marvel Comics. The, 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 they had so many of these titles. And so I was overwhelmed with just the amount of comics that the liquor store had. They were all also not in as good condition. The liquor store had them on a dedicated spinner rack, a creaky spinner rack. And they would get reshuffled and moved and they were torn and they were tattered sometimes. But I didn't care. I, I needed these comic books. The 7-Eleven would, would put them out on on a series of, sh of, of shelves down at the, at the kind of at the floor level. And they were stacked a little neater but they'd also be picked over and you know you you, you would uh grab what you could uh what was available but in 1975 it's a big year that's uh the big the big movement that year is a comic book we'll eventually discuss in the weeks to come which is giant size x-men number one which is the launch of the x-men as we know them today when they stopped being the original five X-Men, which I had passed over in the year I was getting into comics because the book was out, X-Men was out, but it was reprints. The book had sold terribly, so they had just uh, 
put reprints of older stories from the 60s, uh, which was Cyclops, Angel, Iceman, Beast, and Marvel Girl, and Professor X. But a very uh, a, a group of characters that I just wasn't terribly engaged with. Uh, but when Giant Size X-Men, number one, Giant Size X-Men number one, 75 cents, I believe. Double-sized, square-bound almost. Yeah, f- very thick comic book. Came upon that liquor store spinner rack with uh, Colossus and Wolverine, who I'd seen in a issue of Hulk a couple months I- earlier, and, and Nightcrawler and Storm. That's when uh, the, com- the the comic books just expanded for me because then I started to collect X-Men, and, and X-Men was kind of becoming my new kind of favorite thing, but the X-Men was only out six times a year after that. It was a bi-monthly comic, which again, would take some rhythm and some understanding, and Marvel knew this. That's why they'd say bi-monthly on the cover, so you'd know, okay, this is not a a comic I'm going to get 12 times a year. It's a comic I'm going to get six times a year. It's not like the Avengers, and really, we're going to really do some deep dive into the Avengers today, which is where I started, and... Uh, I've kind of gotten ahead of myself, so I will absolutely kind of slow it down and tell you. The reason that I am now doing this broadcast, my inaugural broadcast, what Robservations is really going to uh, exist for is the study of comic books uh, as an art form, comic books, but also their tremendous impact on the culture going as far back as when I was seven years old in 1975. Uh, because this is when you know you're going to get your uh, initial Incredible Hulk uh, TV show, and you're going to get Spider-Man on the air, and you're going to get a couple. You're going to get a Doctor Strange movie, some Captain America TV movies, but you know, toys, games, comic books were very prevalent even in the uh, the 70s. But we were. Uh, it was nowhere near what it would become, what we would, you know, how comic books exist now, which is just phenomenal coming from from where where I started with comics to where they are now and the force that they are to be reckoned with. So there's all this territory in between all my years, my 46 years of consuming comics. Uh, I love to talk comics. Anybody knows I love comics. I, I, I love the history of comics. And so much of the history of comics is getting lost. Uh, even in in the early 2000s, there was lots and lots of comic book history books, many of them actually published by Marvel or DC, chronicling their proud history. But, you know, people aren't as into books, and they don't read as much. And so these giant, beautiful coffee table books, I mean, there must have been like six or seven of them. Uh, in the last 15 years, but but it's slowed down. You don't see them as much anymore, and and uh, bookstores aren't as prevalent, and kids aren't reading paper material. They're listening to podcasts. They're, you know, watching YouTube. And so I decided that this would be the time that I could talk about comics, the impact of comics, the influence of comics, my journey with comics, because my my career is has been informed by my journey as a kid. What I liked, what turned me on and uh, the era that I collected in has a name it's called the bronze age or the bronze era of comics and it really uh, specifically refers to an era from 1974 
to 1986. Some some people will squeeze in 1973 there, but the uh, 73, 74, all the way to 86. 1986 is where Watchmen and Dark Knight happen, and they are really the uh, the precursors or the the forebears, the harbingers of the modern age of comics. Uh, the work that was done then, but those artists, those creators, they came of age in the Bronze Era. Frank Miller uh, arrived into the comic scene, onto the comic scene in 78, 79, and he would begin this incredible career that would find him transforming the Batman that you enjoy, informing Batman to the point where Christopher Nolan and his trilogy with Christian Bale would rely on Frank Miller's seminal depiction of Batman, also Zack Snyder's depiction of Batman, and, and we you know are going to see how much Matt Reeves uh, relies on it. Certainly, Frank Miller's Batman affected Batman the Animated Series by Paul Dini and Bruce, Bruce Tim. So, so again, these part of my uh, obsession with the Bronze Era is not just nostalgia. I had a peer tell me a few years ago, "Oh, you're you're just obsessed with." With your youth, and it's 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 not that. It's that there are about five, six, if we really wanted to push it, eight really influential talents in that time period that crafted versions of those characters in the late 70s, mid-70s, especially if you count the X-Men, to the mid-80s, where those depictions of those characters are what you are getting now. They are the the they are the basis. They are the formula for the character even now in 2020. It's, it's that profound, the work they did. They, they literally provided a modern-day blueprint, if you, if you would, for so many characters, whether it's Batman, whether it's the X-Men, whether it's Daredevil, Spider-Man. This was all formed in this era, and I watched some of these amazing artists. I would compare them to the Scorseses, Martin Scorsese, uh, Francis Ford Coppola, Steven Spielberg, George Lucas. Uh, th th this is that, that version of those filmmakers in comics is Frank Miller and Jim Starlin and George Perez and John Byrne and Walt Simonson and Howard Chaikin, Alan Moore. These are the guys that laid the groundwork for everything that we are experiencing now. So I was there at the dawn of this. I I, I watched Jim Starlin create Thanos and, and, and Adam Warlock and Captain Marvel and the Infinity Gauntlet and everything that you uh, hit his first giant conflicts with the Avengers. I was there for all that. That happened in the late 70s, mid-70s. And to watch it in the last several years become these you know, pop culture defining, you know, generational uh, films that that have profoundly affected lives and, and to be there pulling those comics off the spinner rack in 1975, that, that's a journey. That That is a journey because, again, I have consumed these comics. They are my obsession more than anything uh, in my life. Comic books uh, are the constant. They are, they are a constant from... When I am six years old to now, and I, I'm, I am a 52-year-old man who uh, loves comics, consumes comics, creates comics, is obsessed with comics. So we're going to cover a lot of the journey 
of what happened that was coming off the spinner rack in so many of these books, not just with the characters, but these artists, these seminal artists that I celebrate that had tremendous impact, not only on my uh, peer group and what we created, but what came after and, and ultimately now what you're seeing being shaped in television and in film and in video games. It just the culture has been uh, transformed by comic books, both both Marvel and, and DC. And, and so, uh, you know, for me, it, it started on these spinner racks, you know, that, that, that I pulled comic books off of, off one intersection in Anaheim, off Magnolia and Broadway, where there was the liquor store that faced the 7-Eleven that was kitty corner to the Stater Brothers. The, the Pizza Hut was on the fourth corner of that four-corner intersection. And if you don't think I grabbed so many of these comics and would eventually, you know, on the weekends, you know, my parents would go and get our little booth at Pizza Hut and I would try and not get my greasy fingers all over these amazing comic books. But specifically, uh, the 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 uh, comic books of 1975, the, the one that really, the run of comics that was my favorite at the time was The Avengers. A top-selling title for Marvel. They, they were um, flush with team comic books. Fantastic Four, Avengers, Defenders. 1975, they would launch a book called The Champions, the aforementioned giant-size X-Men, which rebooted the X-Men, changing comics forever. But uh, The Avengers, uh, 141, 1975. I grabbed this comic book, and it features... The Squadron Sinister, which over the course of the year, they would shift their name to the Squadron Supreme. On the cover of Avengers 141, they are referred to as the Squadron Sinister. Now, some of you have never heard of the Squadron Sinister because it hasn't been featured on a Netflix Marvel show or on a uh, on one of the Marvel uh, uh, Cinematic Universe films or, or one of the films from Sony or, or from Fox. And look... I have uh, three teenagers, okay? And I've watched my sons uh, consume these superheroes as filmed entertainment. And, and they have become huge Marvel character fans, if not necessarily Marvel comic book fans. And uh, we've had entire birthday parties that were centered around Civil War and us taking seven of my oldest son's friends to the IMAX and planning the whole thing and opening night. And so, so I, I, as a dad, I have watched the impact of these Marvel characters. And so often until a character is introduced in the, in the Marvel cinematic world, it doesn't matter uh, to them. But, but for those of us who grew up with these characters, we know all of the, 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 how vast the treasure trove is. So the squadron sinister was originally originally appeared in in an er, earlier incarnation, uh, early in the Avengers run around uh, the 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 number seventies or the number eighties, if I'm if I'm not mistaken. Uh, the I think they, they they appeared in Avengers eighty five to begin with. Well, this is many years later. They reemerge. Now, who are they? Well, they are in fact a absolute unapologetic imitation, reflection, version 
of the Justice League. They are Marvel's Justice League. No uh, apologies whatsoever. There is no attempt to hide this. Hyperion is Superman. Dr. Spectrum is Green Lantern. The Wizard is the Flash. Nighthawk is Batman. And they had appeared early in, in an earlier adventure. And they were an obvious kind of nod and a wink that, hey, look at us. We're doing the Justice League. We're, we're pitting our greatest heroes in the Marvel Universe against DC's greatest heroes by, uh, you know, masking somewhat their identities. Obviously, it's not Superman, but Hyperion is this guy who has super speed and super strength and super vision. And, you know, he's an obvious echo of Superman. The Wizard is a super speedster, uh, very in blue and yellow instead of red and yellow. He he appears to look like the Flash with different colors. Doc Spectrum uh, has a spectrum, has a prism that he fires off all sorts of shapes and sizes, hard light objects. It is exactly the Green Lantern ring, except it is this prism that he controls, Doctor Spectrum. And Nighthawk is. Uh, an echo of Batman, a, uh, where instead of a bat, a hawk, and very much the same, a rich billionaire playboy who masquerades as a crime fighter. Well, in 1975, Avengers 141 uh, expands and adds Lady Lark, who is Black Canary, the echo of Black Canary, and uh, Golden Archer, who had appeared previously under a different name, but Golden Archer now is more than ever a green arrow in yellow, the Golden Archer. And this would set up a year-long adventure where the Avengers are battling first the Squadron Sinister and then later on their world, because this is an interesting era for both Marvel and DC, uh, of these different worlds, Counter-Earths, Other Dimensions, Different, different, you know, Earth seven one two as a as opposed to Earth six one five, you know, uh, and you're like you're you're going, what are you talking about, Liefeld? No, literally, you would understand that. Oh, now they're on Counter Earth or you know Earth two in DC Comics, even even Earth three. I mean, all sorts of different parallel dimensions where they would have different versions of their characters. And in, in Marvel's case. The Squadron Sinister crossed the dimensional threshold to come and battle the Avengers and upset, you know, their plans. And as this year-long battle uh, plays out with the Avengers now on the other side, uh, you would get even a, a greater expansion and a greater addition of the Justice League characters. Beyond Hyperion and Dr. Spectrum and the Golden Archer, Green Arrow, Echo, and the Lady Lark, Black Canary, Echo... Captain Hawk or Cap'n, Cap'n Hawk, like Cap'n Crunch, C-A-P apostrophe and Cap'n Hawk, which is obviously Hawkman. He has a mace. He has hawk wings. You'd get the amphibian who was an echo of Aquaman, you know, underwater prince, royalty. And then Tom Thumb, who was the Adam, your little guy. So, and now let me tell you something. As a six, a seven-year-old in 1975, who I had seen these DC comics, I had Superman comics, I had Justice League comics. DC comics in the Bronze Era, especially in the mid to late 70s, were not as exciting to my eyes. 
They did not have the power and the energy. Marvel had power and energy. And uh, ironically, in Avengers 141, the introduction of this new Squadron Supreme, Squadron Sinister storyline. They were originally introduced as a Squadron Sinister in the late 60s in the Avengers. And now they are pivoting in this storyline to the Squadron Supreme. And they would never be the Squadron Sinister again. They would be the Squadron Supreme from that point on, 1975-76 to present day. They are the Squadron Supreme. And this is Marvel's literal version of the Justice League. And, you know, if this makes you go, hearing about this makes you go seek this out, I that would just, that would throw me. Because then you would add, uh, you know, you would add to your comic book palette. Uh, the meal would expand. You could you could see how great these characters are. But uh, and Marvel would not do this just once. Uh, there are other echoes in other comic books. They were having a good time, and I, as a kid, felt like very much I was in on it. It was obvious to the naked eye. This is Marvel's Justice League. But in one forty one, not only is it the beginning of this Squadron Supreme, uh, you open the book. And on the splash page of Avengers 141 in 1975, it says, and introducing our newest Avenging ace, George Perez, artist, okay? George Perez, who would go on to entertain us with his amazing visual palette, language, storytelling, character designs, uh, he really, this was his arrival at the at the A list, the A level, he had previously done smaller stories for Marvel Comics. He had uh, originally started as an assistant to one of their uh, busier comic book pencilers named Rich Buckler, who had done a lot of Fantastic Fours, some Thors, mostly Fantastic Fours, where Rich Buckler really added to his uh, his legacy over at Marvel. But George Perez started off as his pencil assistant. I don't know if that was doing backgrounds or if that was doing small, you know, figures, buildings. I just, I, I'm not sure what that relationship was. It's just known that he was Rich Buckler's assistant. And George then broke off on his own. He did a book called Man Wolf. Uh, and, and uh, uh, which was a, Spider-Man villain who got his own feature and in some of the Marvel magazines. He then did a uh, a serial called Sons of the Tiger, a martial arts strip that then pivoted to be called the White Tiger. Uh, Sons of the Tiger became these three martial artists uh, abandoned their totems and they were picked up and the guy was called the, the White Tiger. And uh, those were in Marvel magazines where George was cutting his teeth on black and white comp magazines, black and white magazines. They weren't color. And uh, those were always, always available at the liquor stores and the 7-Elevens as well. I was familiar with George's name, but now he's on The Avengers, one of their top selling books. And he is showing in this first issue his uh, absolute mastery of multi-charactered uh, uh panels and pages he loved drawing team books he loved fitting so many different characters on the page uh his his really his biggest success has come with depicting team books and in this first issue i mean it's thor it's moon dragon captain america iron man the beast uh yellow jacket wasp scarlet witch vision he just uh 
and the Squadron Supreme, Hyperion, Doctor Doctor Spectrum, the Wizard, Golden Archer. You know, uh, he packs these panels. But this was George Perez's arrival on the big stage, and he is going to depict not one but two super teams with the Avengers and the Squadron Supreme. And this starts again this year long storyline that was very exciting to the just to the naked eye. You go, that's the Justice League. This is. Marvel Comics version of the Justice League and you felt guilty about how much more you liked uh, the Squadron Supreme than, than you liked the Justice League, as I did at the time. The Justice League books were very fun. I would buy assorted copies of them. I wasn't an avid Justice League follower. I didn't feel the need to buy every issue the way I, once I got started with Marvel, I would buy every issue of Fantastic Four and every issue Avengers, Avengers 141, followed by 142, 143, 144, and no looking back. DC books I would go in and out on. If 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 there was an issue of Brave and the Bold, which starred Batman teaming up with a different DC character every month, I would, you know, if it was somebody I liked, you know, Batman and Jonah Hex may not get my money, but Batman, you know, and Green Lantern, I would definitely, I would definitely buy that. So I was a little more picky and choosy when it came to the DC comics. But uh, there was a really wonderful artist named Dick Dillon, wonderful illustrator that was doing the Justice League at this time in the 70s. But I wasn't, uh, it didn't have the power and the energy. And getting back to George Perez, he has often mentioned, as I got to know him as a young man, visiting him at different conventions or in the many interviews that he would conduct, he would talk about the fact that Marvel is where he learned power and energy. And he got that from Jack Kirby, who so much of the Marvel Universe was built on the back of Jack Kirby, who brought us the Avengers and the X-Men and and Thor and Fantastic Four. Those were uh, the inaugural launches of the mighty Jack Kirby, who was referred to as the King, Jack King Kirby, who was all power, all energy, all dynamics. And George really was uh, very much versed in the dynamics and the power of Jack Kirby. So the down to the gestures, the page design, the storytelling, the dramatic crops of the shots that he picked to depict the drama, the motion. Uh, George was a student of Jack Kirby and and Rich Buckler, who he was the assistant to prior to breaking off on his own, also carried with him a great deal of Jack Kirby in his work. So you're seeing the the Justice League depicted as the Squadron Supreme in these different obvious incarnations. Hyperion is Superman and Doc Spectrum is Green Lantern, but you're seeing them depicted through a Marvel lens, a Marvel prism, where... It's bolder, more energetic, uh, more dynamic, which was the Marvel way. Look, a few years later, a book called How to Draw Comics the Marvel Way would hit at the bookstore in my local mall called Walden Books. And it was uh, it was displayed right there at the point of purchase. And uh, I'm telling you right now that How to Draw the Marvel Way, I would pour over it. and And that was... Uh, in, illustrated by Marvel's 
I mean, Marvel's Michelangelo, a gentleman named John Buscema, who drew so much for Marvel, who was so prolific for them over the course of his career. Thor, Fantastic Four, Conan, The Avengers, Silver Surfer, uh, Submariner, I mean, uh, Cull the Conqueror, so many, so many, hundreds and thousands of pages from this man who was just a brilliant illustrator who also incorporated so much of Kirby's dynamics, but he became, especially in the 70s, the template for the Marvel dynamics. And in this How to Draw Comics the Marvel way, it would show, well, here's how two men are entering a room. It's very well illustrated. Two guys in suits entering the room. Here's how a Marvel comic would have them enter the room. And he showed how you tilt the angle. You'd go to more of a worm's eye upshot. I got this. I just, in 1978, I got it. It, it. it poured over me. I understood this is why Marvel comics are different. They have this emphasis on dynamics that no one else had, not even DC Comics. And George Perez was a master of incorporating uh, those dynamics. And so you saw this amazing rendition of Marvel's Justice League pitting themselves against Captain America, Iron Man, The Vision, Scarlet Witch. And it was exciting. I I was swept up. Colorful characters, colorful colorful conflicts, drawn by a guy who was on his way to superstardom, who loved uh, detail and packing the page with different figures and powerful gestures. And uh, when Cap throws his shield, as he does in these pages, and it ricochets off three or four guys before returning to his glove. I mean, you feel it. You feel it on the page. That's the brilliance of comic books. That's why guys like myself who are obsessed with them, we just get so excited at seeing the dynamics. But the Squadron Supreme, this amazing Marvel version of Justice League, and, and you know, along the way, as I said, this this storyline takes place over the course of a year. Well, 141 is where it starts. Avengers 141. Well, seven months later, in Avengers 148, no less than Jack the King Kirby himself. George Perez does the interiors, but Jack Kirby provides the cover, which has Hyperion, their Superman, holding Thor above his head, holding him high above him. And the other... Squadron Supreme members, Doc Spectrum, Captain Hawk, Captain Hawk, and Amphibian, they're all cheering because Hyperion is piling about to throw Thor's body on top of Captain America and Iron Man and the Beast. So the Marvel's version of the Justice League, the Squadron Supreme, are standing defiantly, victorious over our mighty Avengers. And uh, the, the cover blurb, I have it right here, Reads, stand aside, Avengers. The Squadron Supreme is taking over. And then the added blurb says, it's action all the way, true believers. Nuff said, still only 25 cents. This was still just a quarter. Um, now, again, I, I, would, I was going to tell you guys, not only would I save some of my lunch money that my parents would give me every day to fuel my obsession uh, with comic books, but I would mow lawns. I was... Saturday morning, I'd be mowing lawns and $3 for the front lawn and $3 for the back lawn. And and that's where I would add some shekels to get some comic books. And uh, 
it was exciting because I knew on Saturdays I could make a nice trip, jump on my bike or my skateboard and get on over to that liquor store and get on over to that 7-Eleven and pour over their selections and and uh, see maybe if there was a comic I couldn't buy on Wednesday that I had hidden behind a stack of other comics and uh, just add it to my collection. And when I got home, often I would just drop under a, the, the tree in my front yard and I would uh, probably with a sandwich and uh, candy bar and just consume these comics and let them take me away. And uh, I just, I could not get enough of these worlds. And this particular saga with uh, the Squadron Supreme just carried me. And, and this was my formative. The addiction was forming here in 1975. And by the time in issue 148 comes out, we're... We're in the early stages of 1976, the big bicentennial bicentennial year for all uh, all the guys, all the old timers like me. The uh, reason I am dwelling so much on this, uh, this is where my journey began, and I, I get George Perez is brand new, young penciler, taking over the helm uh, of 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 the Avengers, getting getting some some familiarity, becoming the the routine penciler. Uh, Avengers had been jumping around. There wasn't a lot of cohesion to the to the creative team, and and even the the gentleman who was writing these books at the time, Steve Englehart, writes about it in the foreword to one of the collected editions. Because in recent year, Marvel has taken to making these beautiful hardcover editions of so many of their comics, and in the, there's an entire series called Marvel Masterworks hardcovers, expensive hardcovers like. Like 50 bucks, I think. Uh, yeah, $75. Holy crap, this one's $75. This is the the the, the issues I'm, I'm speaking of. I, I pulled this out as well as my my uh, original copies of these. And I read Steve Englehart's foreword in here, and he talks about what a joy it was to finally get a regular penciler who was going to stay more than a few issues. And George Perez spends the better part of five years in and out on this book. Avengers becomes his title is is where he really solidifies himself again with his strong figure work his team dynamics his very unique storytelling and if you are obsessed with comic books you are not only obsessed with drawings and illustrations but storytelling these really refined storyboards and page design and interesting page layouts that would draw your eye and carry you all over the page this is the stuff we'll be covering uh, all the time on on Rob's observations with Rob Liefeld. This is uh, the kind of stuff we're going to deep dive into. But why I'm so interested in in where this all started is, as you know, the Just Justice League uh, has been in the news uh, a whole lot uh, this last week. It's been, you know, rumored for years that the Snyder Cut, Jack, <laughs> Zack Snyder's original vision for Justice League before he stepped away amidst uh, heartache and drama and before Warner Brothers uh, decided to go in a different direction, hired Joss Whedon, kind of maybe changed the outcome of the movie. Uh, Zack Snyder, who had brought us Man of Steel, one of my absolute favorite comic book movies, just movies, period, of all time, and had done Batman versus Superman, 
uh, wasn't able to finish his assembly, his cut of Justice League. And fans have wanted to see, because if you paid attention to the original trailers and the promotional material, the commercials, the snippets, all the early footage, it didn't match up with what we eventually got. Zach literally shot a different movie. And the actors have talked about the different experience. And so this week, uh, I was as thrilled as anyone else to finally get to celebrate the news that Warner Brothers and HBO Max are going to team together and bring us Zack Snyder's vision of the movie that he, you know, intended to bring us, the Snyder Cut of Justice League. And it's got all of fandom buzzing. It is uh, just the news on this is is just a constant as the websites are just drinking this up because they know how 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 uh, feverish everyone is for this content and to see what Zach originated he really was uh, charged with you know crafting the modern Warner Brothers modern answer to what Marvel Comics was doing when they decided to re envision their universe of characters and put this modern spin on them and and without zach we don't get gal gadot as wonder woman he cast her uh for batman spider batman superman he was the director that cast gal in that role role as she you know came as we came to know her in batman versus superman and Obviously, Gal is a pinnacle of strength for this library. The Wonder Woman was a huge success. And just like Robert Downey Jr. with Iron Man, Gal Gadot's charm, charisma, the way she carries our attention. I mean, she's a movie star. She embodies Diana Prince, Princess Diana, as Wonder Woman. And her her performance is a result of of Zach casting her. Same with Jason Momoa, who went on to be in his own billion-dollar franchise as Aquaman, was cast by Zach. So this this uh, this Justice League movie is very important. And it's interesting because I do believe that part of what the behind-the-scenes of kind of undermining everything that Zach was building is because of the arms race between Marvel and DC that was, I think, at an all-time apex. The furnace was burning as hot as it has ever burned as uh, Batman Superman was being assembled and then Justice League to follow because Marvel had just picked up the ball and run with it. Their success remains phenomenal. The Marvel movies have set a new standard not just for comic book movies, but for movies across the board. The the Avengers films, Infinity War, Endgame, you know, are sitting atop the charts as the most viewed, the biggest box office, the most celebrated superhero films of all time. And that started really in uh, 2012 with the release of the original Avengers film, which if you guys all remember, 
and I do, and 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 it's very interesting to revisit the year leading up to the Avengers. No one saw that it would be a billion dollar success. Uh, no one saw that that kind of success because people had looked at the Iron Man films with Downey Jr., the two that had been released so far, and they had really shocked the world with their, especially in 2008 when Iron Man was released and it 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 earned what it earned and had the impact, the cultural impact. It kicked off the modern MCU as we know it. And uh, it just, it really shocked uh, way beyond the comic book industry, the cinematic industry, the, 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 the movie business. And Marvel had, you know, something to build on now. Something, this this entire building of the Avengers. But then in, in summer 2011, Thor and Captain America, while very successful, did not come near Iron Man's success. And as we all know, teaming them all up a year later in the Avengers was lightning in a bottle. It was just what the doctor ordered, and it took Marvel to an even higher peak. So kind of what they achieved in 2008 with Iron Man, four years later now, the Avengers, boom. Well, Warner Brothers and Disney are very competitive entities. I'm not telling you anything you don't already know, but they engaged in their own arms race. They want to get their characters, their movie, their film library uh, up to speed and be competitive because up until the Avengers, they were holding the upper hand. And and trust me, as somebody who has movies in development, uh, who, who's had their characters turned into blockbuster films with Deadpool, Cable, X-Force, I have great friends and contacts here. I live in Southern California and in the movie business. I mean, my family is in the movie business, the, the, the casting directors, actors, actresses, and uh, extended family, and obviously friends and uh, this, this is the stuff that people were buzzing about is, is that, you know, when Avengers did what it did and it, uh, was the new barometer of success, which the Christopher Nolan Batman movies had been just years earlier, Dark Knight, uh, that movie was the new benchmark. It was considered like this new level of, can you even believe that comic book characters can do this kind of business, attract this kind of attention. And then the Avengers comes along with nowhere near the pedigree of someone like a Christopher Nolan who is the force behind these Batman movies. And Avengers just blows the doors off and is the top earner of that summer, out earns the Dark Knight Rises, uh, and just sets a new standard and sets Hollywood scrambling, quite frankly. And obviously, Warner's does what they're going to do. They're going to go to their bench and go, we're going to give people the Justice League. Our Justice League is worth an Avengers film. Was the That was everyone's conclusion. It was just the natural conclusion that if you put Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman together on film, it would equal Iron Man, Captain America, and Thor, and Black Widow, and, you know, I think the pressure, we will never know the internal pressure that was being applied within Warner Brothers to compete with Disney because it's not Marvel and DC anymore and it hasn't been for a very long time. It's uh, it's, it's it's Warner Brothers and Disney. And obviously Disney 
has had the upper hand for years now. Most of it behind this incredible momentum that they've achieved with the Marvel films. And Avengers being, of course, the centerpiece, which is the book that launches my comic book obsession, my absolute life's passion, in a storyline where they're battling the Justice League, the Squadron Supreme, Marvel's version of the Justice League. A version that I, at that time, in 1975, 1976, preferred to the actual Justice League. So this is, and so many fans uh, my age, around my age, who took this ride, who grabbed Avengers 141, who saw George Perez come on the Avengers and become the new artistic voice and supply us with these even newer additions to the Squadron Supreme uh, mythos. Uh, with 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 Tom Thumb and Lady Lark and Captain Hawk and and uh, Amphibian, alongside his powerful renditions of Hyperion Wizard, Doc Spectrum, and again have them besting our favorites: Vision, Cap, Iron Man, the Beast. This is exciting. And uh, as a kid, I ate this up. I ate this up. I loved seeing Marvel's version of these DC icons. Which again, as I say, that it was it's unapologetic. I once I was told uh, when discussing uh, these what I call these knockoffs with friends of mine uh, in the business. One of them who was much older, you know, took this kind of scolding attitude towards me, like, "Well, Rob, you don't understand. They were allowed to do that because the guys at DC Editorial and the guys at Marvel Editorial they were friends." And they'd be out having drinks on the weekend in the bars in New York City because Marvel and DC were both headquartered in, in Manhattan. And they'd laugh about, oh, what if we did a spoof of, you know, Justice League? And what if we did a spoof of the Avengers? And, you know, there was uh, back when I, 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 I referenced the X-Men early on, the original X-Men, Professor X, Cyclops, Beast Angel, Iceman, Marvel Girl, uh, DC had a weirdo kind of outcast group called the Doom Patrol that arrived the same period with a wheelchair-bound uh, kind of mastermind leader behind their group, and the rest of them were outcasts called the Doom Patrol. The Doom Patrol now obviously on the DC uh, Universe uh, show, the DC, you know, online. Uh, going into their second season, so now you, the Doom Patrol is in the in the consciousness with with, with filmed entertainment has has heightened their profile, but very similar. And there was, you know, several fanzines that did these comparisons of Doom Patrol and X Men, and were the creators stealing from each other? Did they know what the other was doing when they launched them? You know, within the same time period back in the '60s. So it was kind of like, hey, Rob, this was. This was a product of friendships, friendships at DC Comics and Marvel Comics that created these, you know, echoes that you're talking about, these Squadron Supreme imitating the Justice League so obviously. And here's my thing. I, I don't know that. I'm seven years old, taking my skateboard, going to the liquor store, you know, giving my quarters, buying my copies of Avengers and Fantastic Four and what have you. And uh, I just think, wow, Marvel's pretty bold. They've got these, these obvious echoes of the DC, the biggest DC characters. Justice League was DC's 
top-selling book. Without Justice League, there is no Marvel Comics as we know today because Stan Lee had and has said routinely many times he saw that Justice League was DC's number one selling book and that team books were the way to go and that Marvel needed their own team book. And uh, his brother had told him, you know, he had looked at the sales figures and told Stan to get him more books like the Justice League, which is where we got Fantastic Four and Avengers, X-Men. Marvel decided to pivot away from the monster books, the romance books they were doing, the war books, and embrace the superhero uh, formula of the team book, of getting teams of characters. That's what I liked. I always bought team books over solo books. Uh, I would buy an Avengers before I bought a Captain America. I would buy a Fantastic Four before I would buy a Spider-Man. I would buy a Champions comic before I would buy a Daredevil. It's just how I was wired. I liked more characters. I loved the team dynamic. So, the Justice League was the, you know, most successful book that DC was publishing. And here Marvel is echoing it. And I don't know about the guys in Manhattan having drinks, deciding, hey, wouldn't this be great, you know, buddy of mine, that you would do this over at your imprint and we'll do an answer to it over at our imprint. And, you know, uh, we'll get into this more over the weeks, especially in the 70s. This is a really big deal. You'll see this in the pages of the X-Men. You'll see this in the pages of the uh, Invaders over at DC. You'll see this in the pages of Freedom Fighters. This is this is definitely something that was going on back and forth, whether it was tongue-in-cheek or nudge-nudge, wink-wink, or if it was like, hey, man, we think we can do your characters better than you, and we're going to show it. The Squadron Supreme was really... This was an investment for the fans. This, this multi-year... This multi... This year-long battle between the Avengers and Squadron Supreme. Fans like me, we got caught up in it. We got caught up in it. The Squadron Supreme will return in several appearances over the Bronze Age, the Bronze Era, that period I've, I've referenced from 1973 to 1986. They would appear in 1985 in their own 12-issue maxi-series with further echoes. There were echoes of Firestorm. There were Echoes of Martian Manhunter. They kept adding, making it more and more obvious and extensive that this was a Justice League echo. But it felt like, especially in that 12-issue Squadron Supreme Maxi series, that Marvel was trying to say, we can do Justice League as good, if not better. And that was, by that time, in 1985, I am in comic book stores, comic book clubhouses where... People just like me gathered to buy comic books, no longer from spinner racks in liquor stores or the direct market, but we would gather in these, they're clubhouses. They still are. They're dedicated to the craft, the hobby, the obsession, the consumer of comic books. And that's where we all kind of share our passion and our stories and what we like and what we don't like. And and Squadron Supreme was definitely a uh, very focused effort at doing this giant 12-issue saga. So the Squadron Supreme would go on and continues to be a part of the Marvel uh, publishing empire. And there are rumors that eventually we will see the Squadron Supreme either in the cinematic Marvel Universe or we will see Squadron Supreme in some of these Disney Plus shows. I've read reports from all ends and it just makes sense that after dominating the world with the Avengers, maybe... You know, 
Feige and his crew decide we can we can take a stab at these characters that are a very obvious echo of the DC characters, which have gone on to have a huge life of their own. But again, Zack Snyder's Justice League is where the plan on a corporate level, uh, we all agree, Warner Brothers, where it kind of fell apart. It underperformed, especially following a huge Wonder Woman performance. So, so Zack Snyder brings us Gal Gadot, introduces her in Batman's Superman great performance. Just she is amazing, astonishing. What's our appetite? Year later, we get her in her own film debut, which blows audiences away. Is so well done. Patty Jenkins is so accomplished. The direction, the script, it's so brilliant. And uh, Wonder Woman is a giant hit. Massive, massive worldwide sensation. And so, what's coming that year, December, November, late 2017, you're getting Justice League. You're finally getting it. You're getting the Avengers. All these characters. We're, we're, we're giving you Flash. We're giving you Cyborg. It's big, 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 big movie with, with the big lineup, just like the Avengers in the summer of 2012, except it doesn't connect with audiences. It doesn't have nearly the impact. And uh, Warners and DC start to kind of change the battle plan. Obviously, Aquaman is going to go forward. Again, Jason Momoa is someone that Zack Snyder cast. And just like Gal with Wonder Woman. And they start to shift and change, you know. There's no Justice League 2 announced. Man of Steel 2. Some of these obvious Zack Snyder extensions are not moving forward. Well, now we get to see what Zach had intended. He has been given the 20 to 30, as what they're reporting, million to finish his assembly, his cut. Maybe it's six hours, maybe it's three hours, whatever it is. I, as far as I'm concerned, between you guys uh, and me here on Observations, we would like the six hours, please. We would like the full six hours, all of Zach's uh Footage, everything he intended, uh, no cuts, the streaming world, the streaming empires that are now the game of the day. It's not box office anymore. It's are you subscribing to our platform? That's why the Snyder people, we all felt like this had a great opportunity. A buddy of mine in the entertainment industry texted me the day it was announced. Said, Can you believe this? He has a high station, a high station in the entertainment industry at a big company. I will not reveal my buddy at this time, I won't say that in the future I will not reveal him, but at this time I will not. But he says, can you believe this? Why are they doing this? And I very confidently texted back and said, content is king, buddy. Content is king. Zack Snyder filmed an entire Justice League movie that we've been denied for years. Obvious footage from trailers and and, and previews that we all recall that didn't make it into the final cut. That exists in a different assembly under the vision of a different director. Obviously, Joss Whedon was hired to finish Warner Brothers' new version that veered away from Zack. Zack has his version, which they're now going to allow him to finish with all the bells and whistles, giving him a really great budget to get all of our eyeballs 
on HBO Max. I got to be honest, I wasn't sold on HBO Max. I still haven't ordered it. It's, uh, but I won't miss out on seeing the Snyder Cut when this airs. If it's as long as it's, if it's six weeks, if it's one shot, I will buy HBO Max for that period. It is money in the bank. It is money well spent. I am all in. Uh, I have been a massive Zack Snyder fan since uh, he was shooting music videos and Dawn of the Dead and 300, which changed the world. 300, if you guys remember the weekend that came out, I rolled up to the theater like I always do on a Friday. I, I draw comic books. I work at home. I can, I can always do a 10 or 11 a.m. showing of any film that comes out on a Friday. Now, obviously, they're Thursday nights, but this wasn't that. This was still a Friday rollout. I rolled up early. It's Friday. It's my movie day, and I could not believe the line I had to stand in. I was shocked. I'm like, wow, what, what's going on here? This isn't just the, you know, buy the ticket, roll on in and get a seat. I'm, I'm in a line in the middle of the day, like, and it's a lot of men, and these 300 commercials, the footage, the concept is really connecting with people. It's electrified. And then when I woke up the next day to see the box office that 300 generated on, on Friday and that it was going to win the weekend with whatever, 75, 76 million, whatever it did that shocked the world. 300 is a seminal piece of filmmaking. Just, and it changed the world. It, 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 if you guys remember, it made that March release date a thing. The very next year, they would uh, release the Tarantino, uh, Robert Rodriguez uh, mashup film on that date because now that was that was that was the date. Now you could open a movie in March. That's all because of 300. 300's huge, profound effect on the box office in March of that year was why suddenly movies started opening in March. Zach is. His, his impact is huge. It's tremendous. And uh, from 300, I remember when they announced that Zack Snyder was going to do The Watchmen. And I am on record. I will back up. I think Watchmen in the theatrical cut to the brilliant director's cut 4K that I proudly rock in my collection. Both versions uh, are brilliant. I think Zack nailed Watchmen. I think it was a very high bar to clear. He cleared it. From the very opening to the very ending, I just oh I I Zack Snyder, much like George Perez, I knew immediately. I totally dug where his art was going and his style of filmmaking, and I have been on board ever since. I love Sucker Punch. I've seen it all. I love it all. I cannot wait for Justice League, the Snyder Cut. So tonight's raw observations told you a little about myself. I did not really kind of get into uh, my career credentials. I kind of, looking back, I, I skipped past that, but I have had a, been very fortunate to have a amazing career in comic books. Started from this passion, this obsession. Uh, I introduced the new Dove alongside Carl and Barbara Kiesel and, and reinvigorated a dead franchise in Hawk and Dove. Introduced Don Granger, who, some of you have seen on DC Online, wonderfully portrayed by Minka Kelly, and uh, just astonishing that what we started there in 1987, 88, and and became 
this put Hawk and Dove back on the map. They hadn't had a series in 15 years. And suddenly they had a series and it rocked and people dug it and, and uh, longer than that, I think 17 years. And Don Granger Dove has been Dove longer than the original Dove has been Dove. And I think we stuck the landing with her. I, I went on to uh, do the New Mutants and take over that book. And uh, as I read in these coffee table books that I mentioned an hour ago, it says Rob Liefeld won his showcase with the creation of Cable and Deadpool and Domino and all these characters that I poured out of my very excited, youthful imagination onto the page that uh, then made X-Force the number two best-selling comic book of all time, which it remains, which I'm very humbled by, excited by. Went on to form Image Comics with my peers, uh, a wonderful com- comic book company, the, the number three comic book company for the last two decades. Uh this is my passion. Comic books are my passion. I love it. I've been fortunate to see Ryan Reynolds and Josh Brolin and Zazie Beetz and Minka Kelly, as I mentioned, portray characters of my Deadpool, Cable, Domino, X-Force, Dove. And it has been a thrill. It has been a thrill. But my passion is the page, is comic books. And what we're going to do on Raw Observations is we are going to discuss the path of these characters from these pages and how they've been transformed onto the screen. And again tonight, it was just uh, my journey starts with Avengers 141 as a serialized comic book collector. Not just grabbing piecemeal Fantastic Fours, which was responsible for my fever, but then the diet of comic books that I would go on and the uh, obsession that I forged with these Avengers comics that started with this echo of the Justice League, the Squadron Supreme, and uh, then realizing that the Justice League with the Snyder Cut this week and the resonance of that announcement and the excitement to fandom, and I personally think it's going to pay off big time. Huge, huge. And uh, so that kind of stuff. I, I, I talked about George Perez tonight. I mentioned Frank Miller briefly. Uh, I mentioned the guys in this bronze era Jim Starlin, who brought us Thanos. John Byrne, Dave Cockrum, who brought us all of the, really the bedrock of everything about the X-Men that the culture continues to enjoy. Storm, Nightcrawler, Wolverine, Phoenix, Days of Future Past, The Hellfire Club, Alpha Flight, Proteus. All of this was born in this once-in-a-lifetime X-Men run. And uh, George Perez, as I've mentioned, his Avengers, the Teen Titans, the, the Justice League. He'd go on to do the Justice League in the early 80s. And it was the best the Justice League had ever been. They never looked better. They've never been better. Uh, Frank Miller, the Daredevil that you saw on Netflix all three seasons, ripped out right out of the pages of the work that he started to do in 1979 through 1982-83. And all these Batman iterations that are still, you know, being fueled by the work he did in the critically acclaimed seminal Dark Knight Returns, a a, a, a work that has had possibly the most profound effect on the culture and the character. I'm looking at it. I, I, I have multiple Dark Knight. The only versions of Batman I have in my office are, are Dark Knight statues that look like Frank Miller drew them, amazing sculpts that are 
based 100% on his style and his renditions of The Dark Knight. So I am fortunate to have grown up with comics when comics were changing the culture and forging the characters in a way that they would find you through filmed entertainment. And there is so much to discuss, so much to dissect. I view comic books a lot in the way that I view sports. The Magic Johnsons, Michael Jordans, Tom Brady's of comics. They are mini. They are competitive. These guys are finding their voice, finding their techniques. They are... uh, They were fighting way back then to make their mark with characters, with their art, and change the course of the culture. You know, you don't get Hugh Jackman as Wolverine without Len Wein, Herb Trimp, Dave Cockrum, Chris Claremont, Frank Miller, each pouring into this character that would continue to build his momentum until he's this movie star, giant movie star. That made Hugh Jackman's career. Wolverine made Hugh Jackman. Hugh Jackman made Wolverine. So we are going to visit these themes. You're going to walk through this journey. Sometimes it's going to be non-linear. Sometimes it's going to be matched up in sync perfectly. So if you want to check out these amazing Avengers comics this crazy year. You can buy this run of Avengers 141, really up to 149 is the entire saga in a nutshell. This year-long, George Perez drew, I think, maybe seven, eight of the ten chapters. And uh, great time travel story with Thor uh, and Hawkeye as kind of a side subplot the entire time too which involves all the marvel western heroes which is a story for another day but these avengers comics are collected in marvel masterworks the marvel masterworks series uh, avengers number 15 and uh it's been in trade paperback and uh but the 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 hardcover is really nice is uh, something you get on amazon ebay and on Comixology, digital comics are, are, are a thing. You can get them for your iPad and your iPhone. And uh, these these comics are available for you to consume and, and see. What, what What is he talking about, this, this Marvel version of the Justice League? And wouldn't it be a kick if Feige did say, I'm going to do our Justice League. Everybody knows in comics that the Squadron Supreme is Marvel's Justice League. That's how it's known, as Marvel's Justice League. And in recent years, they have had all new iterations. And I think they even pulled a couple of them into the Marvel Universe proper to team up their version of uh, Wonder Woman, I believe is called Power Princess. And uh, she has popped into Marvel Universe proper as recently as in the mid-2000s. But wouldn't it be interesting if Hyperion and Doc Spectrum... And the wizard all saw the light of day. Uh, maybe in an Avengers film. Maybe doing this storyline I'm telling you about right now. But thank you for uh, hanging out with me. And listening to this inaugural broadcast. I'll get better at what I do. I will uh, improve uh, on on uh, 
what I'm presenting to you and how I am presenting it to you, but this is going to be great. I am shooting to get two episodes up a week because anybody who knows me knows that I love to talk comic books. That is my thing. I love to discuss comic books. And speaking of comics, as we wrap up, this pandemic that we seem to be coming out of, my wife and I, we we live uh, in a county that is very much adhered to all of the CDC guidelines, social distancing, you know, we were basically locked up our family for two and a half months, as I'm sure you have been, and we have uh, listened, watched, learned, and helped to flatten the curve, and our kids are healthy. Uh, my son had to come home from college, long story short, we've all been on top of each other, we've been doing great, we've made it through, it seems like there's a new day dawning, um, the county was opened for dining, and uh, my wife and I went out to a patio experience, had some of our favorite pizza this evening, and it feels like we are coming out of this. The reason I mention this is comic books, Marvel comic books, DC comic books, image comic books are coming out in this week, all of them together. I think there was an initial shipment this last week, but now we are renewing our comic book hobbies, and it's going to be interesting. I refer to the fever, comic book fever, just like Feige and his maestros had put together a fever that could not be broken with their films, which obviously they got up to three a year there at some point with a Captain Marvel and Avengers, you know, and Ant-Man and Wasp. It was just uh, nonstop. Every, every four months, it seemed like we had a new Marvel adventure to plug into from Thor Ragnarok to Black Panther to Infinity War. That was a huge fever that has now been broken. And, and, you know, I wouldn't bet against them, but the fever is not what it was with Black Widow now being punted. But with comics, the same fevers persisted. And then the collecting fever broke for a good two and a half months. A lot of my local comic stores stayed in business selling digitally, selling collections, selling back issues. Uh, more power to all these people. They they crushed it. They were selling comics, making comics available for you guys, selling them digitally, selling them online through Facebook and Instagram and their websites. But comics have remained strong. A lot of these retailers, my friends, they have done very well because people still want their comic books. And comic books by nature are, and I say this as someone who continues and will continue to draw comics for the next two decades uh, and have for 34 years, comic books are cheap entertainment. They are cheaper than a movie ticket. They are, you know, cheaper than a, a, a video game. They, they are the cheap entertainment. They always have been cheap entertainment. For me, I love them. I adore them. They're my favorite entertainment, but they are... Uh, cheaper they are not really challenged by a heavy price tag and as such i think they thrived during this pandemic they were people looked to comic books to entertain them adventures to read worlds to explore all in as jack kirby said when i did a panel with him for the price of paper and and the printing press and and they were created on paper or digital pads so the cost of producing comics is very economic. It's very feasible. And so the cost that gets passed along is also very 
reasonable, feasible, and doesn't break your bank. And I think people look to comics in a way they haven't looked to comics in a very long time, which is very exciting. And now as comics are starting to come back, it's going to be interesting to see what we collect and what we consume. And has our have our habits and our fevers been broken? Are we going to expect more of the comic companies? I've never been a, just a blind, a big fan of the blind crossover and these events. What you're going to see here on Rob Observations, I will talk about singular talents. Frank Miller, Jim Starlin, George Perez, John Byrne, Howard Chaikin, Dave Cockrum. Guys that move the needle with their imagination. They created characters, concepts, conflicts that swept me and my generation up and endeared them to me, endeared their characters and their depiction of those characters. And for some, those characters cannot be done in a way that is suitable unless those guys are doing them. In my mind, that, that's how I've, I've always been. I, I think John Byrne's X-Men from 1977 to 1980 is the best X-Men there's ever been, and there won't be a better. And I think the prices on that artwork and those back issues uh, serve to show that the fans feel the same. This is what they value the most is John Byrne's depiction of the X-Men, Frank Miller's depiction of Daredevil. Not crossovers, not events that you're supposed to hopscotch and collect 22 different chapters of because that helps the company's bottom line. The corporate stuff I've never been as big of a fan of or as passionate my entire consuming career. That's just not where my plane lands, you know? I'm on the talent side of things. Always have been, always will be. The corporate stuff, it's got to meet a certain threshold. But for the creative guys who want to give me an Electra or a Venom or a Thanos, I'm always there for it. So it'll be interesting. As we come out of this in comic books, which have been selling because you couldn't buy new comics, you had to buy what we call back issues. And all my stores that I frequent have been crushing it, selling collections and back issues. Adventures of the Past. Maybe you wanted to get those original Thanos comics. Maybe you wanted to get those original Captain Marvels when she was Ms. Marvel. Carol Danvers. You know, that's the stuff that people have been buying. That's the stuff that people have been consuming. So we're coming out of it. We're coming out of it. I think it's going to be strong. It's going to be a new opportunity. Even new voices, new artists to continue to push this medium. For me, I love G.I. Joe. I've lived it my whole life. I'll expand upon this more the next time, but I have a Snake Eyes, one of the most popular G.I. Joe characters ever. I have a dedicated uh, series called Dead Game that launches in July. I hope you guys will take that trip with me. I have poured all my passion into this, into this depiction of Snake Eyes. Um, and I am excited about talking to, to you guys about it in the future and hoping to uh, whet your appetite and get you interested. It launches in July. But that is how we are going to leave things Tonight, thank you for joining me on my inaugural Robservations with Rob Liefeld. We talk some comics. We talk some movies. We're going to do that. Some cultures. We're going to do it every time. How these characters went from Lou Ferrigno to Mark Ruffalo. Honestly, from Jack Kirby to Salvia Summit to Herb Trimp to John Byrne to Dale Keown, Lou Ferrigno. 
Ed Norton, Mark Ruffalo. Amazing. These journeys are great. Uh, Thank you for spending time with me. Thank you for listening to this. I will see you on the very next Raw Observations when it drops later this week. Uh, Have a great night. Stay safe and have fun and read a comic book. Thank you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Raw Observations. Thank you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Raw Observations. We are officially available on Spotify and iTunes. And we are at podcast at robliefeldcreations.com We are at for more info about Raw Observations with Rob Liefeld you can find us at podcast.robliefeldcreations.com As always, send your comments to info at robliefeldcreations.com That's info at robliefeldcreations.com You can connect with me on Twitter at Robert Liefeld and on Instagram as Rob Liefeld Have a great week. Talk to you then.